Thanks for tuning in to the Crew at UGA podcast. We are so glad to have you with us. Crew exists to call students to know God, grow in their faith, and go to the world. If you would like to get more connected with Crew at UGA, or if we can help you in any way at all, go to the show notes and click on the link, or follow us on Instagram at Crew at UGA. All right, let's get started. How's everybody doing? Is this good now? Can I talk? Okay. Hey, well, like he said, I'm Brooks. I'm Brooks Lamont. I'm married to Eliza, who's on crew staff. Um, Let's give it up for her. Um, Yeah, so I'm Brooks. I am on staff with Fislam, if you guys are familiar with that. Some of my guys are right here. I'm also on staff with Living Hope Church here in Athens. Um, And I, just a couple of years ago, was sitting in your seat. I was a uh, really involved in crew my freshman year, and then um, started shifting my attention to some other ministries. But um, crew was very formational in the beginning of my walk with Jesus. So so far in this series, um, we've been studying uh, the book of Exodus. And when we first started off, Kyler gave us a great introduction and walked us through kind of how the Bible is one unified story. That it's not um, part one and part two. Um, it's not two separate books. Um, but it is one unified story about God and his people and the partnership between them. In the second week, Daniel explained what was going on in this battle um, between God and evil um, in Egypt uh, with Pharaoh and the plagues. I mean, in that sermon, we learned about how God is different from any of the other gods, um, that he is distinct from them. And then last week, Brit walked us through the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. And last week, we learned about how God is a deliverer of his people. And so tonight, we're going to learn uh, about how God is inviting his people to come to him and to receive his care, that he's a God who cares for them. And last week, we closed out this first kind of movement of the Exodus scroll. And this week, we're starting with the second movement. And tonight, we're picking up in the same story about the same people. And so the last words from the chapters that we covered last week are this. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So God has just brought his people out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea. They're no longer slaves. They fear God, and they trust him. And immediately, they break into worship. They're singing a song. Um, It's one of the first worship songs we see in scripture. Um, And they recount the events that just happened. They sing of how great God is, how he's different from Pharaoh, um, and how he's brought them through the Red Sea. And it starts with worship, and then it turns into a full-on dance party. Um, A woman named Miriam grabs an instrument, and she brings all of her girlfriends in. They start having a really great time worshiping God together. Um, And their hearts are filled with joy for what God has just done. But then the story takes a massive turn. And they were at this high, high. And over the course of three days, they've gotten to a place of low, low. And three days go by and no one drinks a drop of water. People start getting thirsty, but they can't drink the water because it's bitter. And the Israelites begin to grumble because they're so thirsty. Um, But God then gives away for Moses to provide the people with some drinking water. And in that simple act, God instates a test for his people, and it is one of the first tests that they will face in this story. And this is chapter 15, verse 26. 
It says, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. So this verse is really key, and it's really key for um, a multitude of reasons, but the main reason that I want us to focus on is where this verse is occurring in Scripture in comparison to other events in the greater story of the Bible. So in this series, we're talking about how um, the entire Bible is one connected story, and so we need to take note of chronologically where this verse is happening. So up until this point, God's people have never really had a formal framework for right and wrong. The Ten Commandments uh, were not instated yet. Um, they, don't, they know what it means to honor God and to obey him, to follow him, to choose him, um, and they know certain practices that they're supposed to have uh, within their faith community, um, but they don't have a set framework for what it looks like to follow God day in and day out. And it's in this verse that we see God telling the Israelites that if they want to prosper, they must obey his commandments. But what commandments? The Ten Commandments aren't here yet. Um, the people of Israel don't have a framework for living. And in this verse, God is actually setting the stage for a new way of life that he is about to call them into, that he's about to introduce to his people. The Israelites have entered into a new setting, coming out of Egypt. They've entered into a new season, and this calls for a new way of living. And so a couple of different things are happening in the chapters um, that we're going to be covering tonight. And the majority of what happens has to do with God providing for the needs of the Israelites. He gives them drinking water, he gives them food, and then he gives them water again. And he supplies this food and water in miraculous ways. And we could talk through each of those events and the significance of the way that God supplied for his people. But tonight, I want to focus in on one particular um, event in this story. And this event, I'm going to refer to it as the bread test. The bread test. Um, So like I said earlier, the Israelites have just come out of Egypt, and they're tired, um, and they're hungry. And so we pick up this story in chapter 16, verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them and whether they will walk in my law or not. So we see bread, and we see test. And they're supposed to go out, and they're supposed to gather this bread. But it also says something about walking in the law. And so we see bread, test, and whether they'll walk in my law or not. But again, what is this law? We have not been introduced to it yet. Um, But God is saying that there's a principle to follow in this test. So we're going to pick up in verse 5. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. And go down to verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, 
there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, Mana, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. You shall each take an omer, which is a way of measuring back then, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people, people of Israel did so. They gathered some more and some less. So there's the first command, gather bread. God decides to test his people using bread. But this isn't just any type of bread. This bread is weird. It's strange. They've never seen it before. It's not like anything that they can even understand or conceptualize. And it's so strange that they don't even know what to call it. This, this word that we, say, we call it manna, or the Hebrew word would be mana, it means what is it? They don't even know what to call this thing, so they call it what is it. And it's not just what is it, it's most likely what is it, exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point, because we're just confused. It's so different. It's so new. And then verse 18, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. So it looks like there's a particular way to best practice this command that God has given. And in verse 19, and Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. So they have to gather this manna and this bread in a particular way. Otherwise, it will be misused, and they won't receive everything from God that is in this manna. And if you recall in verse 5, it mentions the sixth day. And the sixth day is crucially important here, because on the sixth day, there will be twice as much manna, and they will need to gather double the amount that they normally do. And so in verse 22, the sixth day has come, and you and I, as the readers, are wondering, what, is, what are the Israelites going to do? They don't have a great track record, and so we're wondering, are they going to obey, or are they not? So in verse 22, on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. Great. They did the right thing. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded you. This is why you gathered twice as much bread. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. In verse 27, on the seventh day, Unfortunately, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So if you aren't familiar with this story, you probably would have guessed what would happen. Um, in this ragtag bunch of people, some people get it, and some people just have a hard time getting it and have a hard time following what God says. Some of them trust and obey, and some don't. Others of them go back out on the seventh day and look for food. So what's going on here? 
Like I said, God has instated this test, the bread test. So first, I want to take a moment to talk about tests in Scripture. In the Bible, tests are usually one of two things. They're either opportunities or traps. And what makes a test one of those, an opportunity or a trap, is the person who is giving the test. And so if the test is coming from God, it's most likely an opportunity for his people to come closer and to go deeper. So you can think of of a test that would be an opportunity in Scripture as um, when God was testing Abraham and sacrificing his son Isaac. It was a test and an opportunity for faith. But if the test is coming from Satan or from the world, it's a trap. Think of Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. This was not an opportunity. It was a trap from Satan. So tests are either opportunities or traps. And here we have the bread test, which is an opportunity. It is a good test. So when we hear that word test, we should think it's a good thing. But this test really isn't about food. Um, It's an opportunity for trust. Will the Israelites trust God and enter his rest? And he uses bread as an instrument and an image in this test. But why do the Israelites need this test? So let's take some time and just talk about Egypt really briefly in this place that they just came out of. So put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite. Everyone in your culture has been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. You yourself were a slave just a couple weeks prior to this story. You have never known a day in which you were not a slave. Your mother and your father never knew a day when they weren't a slave. You've never had a day in your life where you didn't work. And writing about Egypt, um, Walter Brueggemann He has this quote, and it's a little lengthy, but I think it's really good, so I'm going to share it. It's talking about Egypt. It is clear that in this system, there can be no Sabbath rest. There is no rest for Pharaoh in his supervisory capacity, and he undoubtedly monitors daily production schedules. Consequently, there can be no rest for Pharaoh's supervisors or taskmasters. And of course, there can be no rest for slaves who must satisfy the taskmasters in order to meet Pharaoh's demanding quotas. We may imagine, moreover, that the Egyptian gods also never rested because of their commitment to the aggrandizement of Pharaoh's system, for the glory of Pharaoh surely redounded to the glory of the Egyptian gods. The economy reflects the splendor of the gods who legitimate the entire system for its cheap labor as an indispensable footnote. So living in Egypt is extremely difficult for the Jewish people. There is no rest. The Israelites don't rest. The supervisors and taskmasters don't rest, Pharaoh doesn't rest, and even the Egyptian gods don't rest. Work and unrest, productivity and achievement are the heartbeat of Egypt. It's a corrupt system that has corrupted the people of God. And over the centuries, this idolatry of production and work on the part of the Egyptians has caused the Israelites to know how to do nothing but work. And so this is why the bread test is so important. God is showing his people that he is unlike the gods of Egypt. He's not Pharaoh. He isn't a God who lays down heavy burdens. Instead, he deeply cares for his people. And he is inviting them into a life of rest with him. So as they enter the wilderness, God sets up a new way for the Israelites to live. Really, it's a new way for them to be human. And this is the model gather bread, into rest. 
And it's in this invitation that the Israelites will find life. God is inviting them to come close and to receive his care. He supplies their needs all week long, and it's on the sixth day that he gives them a double portion of manna so they can have food on the Sabbath day and not have to work. Gather bread and to rest. Come and receive my care. No bread, no rest. So what's the point of this story? We've been talking about how the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. So where does Jesus come into play? Well, Jesus, when he was talking to the religious leaders of his day, he would, we would say that the entirety of the Old Testament is about me. And so in John 6, we actually see Jesus answering these questions. Um, in John 6, a crowd approaches Jesus and they start up a conversation with him. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. He's talking about the manna. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And there are people who look at him and they say, we want this bread, give it to us. And in verse 35, Jesus replies, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And how do the people respond when he says this? Well, in John 6, it says that they grumble. And you remember who else in the Bible grumbled? The Israelites. The Israelites were grumbling in the wilderness, so God gave them the bread test. And now Jesus is giving his version of the bread test to another set of people, and their response is grumbling. It's a mirror. People don't like the bread test. It goes against the grain. The bread test reminds people that they can't do life on their own. Gather bread and enter rest. It's not normal, it's not natural, it's actually extremely hard. And again in John, it goes on, and Jesus says in verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So here we are. We're here on a, a crew on a Tuesday night. And everyone faces the bread test. Every one of us. Gather bread into rest. No bread, no rest. The story still applies. And in John 6.35, Jesus says... I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever comes to me. Does anybody know what else, what other scripture sounds like that? Whoever comes to me, or come to me? Anybody? Yes. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light and I love this translation um, from Eugene Peterson are you tired worn out are you burned out on religion come to me get away with me and you'll recover your life I'll show you how to take a real rest walk with me and work with me watch how I do it 
learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn how to live freely and lightly. Keep company with me and you'll live freely and lightly. Don't we all wanna live freely and lightly? And this isn't about just not working. He mentions in there that we need to walk with him and work with him. And it's less about a rule and it's more about a rhythm, a healthy rhythm of work and rest. And I know Athens isn't a desert. There aren't pyramids here. Our mayor doesn't look like Pharaoh. But we really are living in Egypt. There is a pull in Athens. There is a tone that looms over this town in this campus. And there's something here, it's almost like it has a gravity to it, that it's pulling us towards productivity and achievement. And college, for, for some of us, really is the first step towards the rat race that so many adults are caught on and are enslaved to. But we, a lot of times, don't notice this. We don't notice the pull because it's so ingrained in the society around us and so many people are deadened to it. And in 2005, David Foster Wallace, he's a famous writer, he was giving a commencement speech and he told a story about two fish. He said, there are these two young fish and they're swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish and that older fish is swimming the other way. And the older fish nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and they eventually, one of them looks over at the other one and says, what the heck is water? And our culture is kind of like that. Our culture is the water that we swim in. We have been in this water for so long that we don't realize that we're swimming. Our culture is the water that we swim in. And these waters are consumed with the pursuit of success and achievement and desire for more. And the waters in Athens might not look like the waters in Egypt on the surface, but it's the same water once you go down deeper. It's a system based on achievement and productivity. Do more, work harder, achieve more, and it doesn't stop. And it's not just in schoolwork. It's in professional work, it's in our relationships, and for, for some of us, it's even in our spiritual lives. How many of us, when we think of following Jesus, do we think of an easy yoke? And how many of us think of hard work? So we know the story of the Israelites, we know how Jesus is the fulfillment of that story. We know the waters that we swim in. So what does this mean for you and me? So in this room, most of us face one of two bread tests. Like I said, the bread test is still happening today. And so if you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus today, maybe you were just here because you, some friend brought you or you just decided to show up for some reason, um, your bread test is less of a test and it's more of an invitation. Jesus is inviting you to the table to come and sit with him, to eat with him, to receive life, and to enter his rest. Jesus has a place for you at his table, and there's nothing that you have to do to earn that seat. The seat is there, and it's open. In John 6, Jesus said, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So there's an open seat for you, and he's calling you to come to sit down and to eat with him.
So if you do call yourself a follower of Jesus, you do face a bread test. And I believe that this bread test is the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a long time neglected practice in the church. And we could talk about Sabbath for hours and hours. I love the Sabbath. Um, But I will give us just a quick rundown of where the Sabbath came from and how we lost it and where it went. So in Genesis, after the creation, after the completion of creation, God rested on the seventh day. Um, So we need to see that God needed rest. Um, The God of the universe had to take a day to rest. But on day six, just before that, Adam and Eve were created. And then when they woke up on day seven, their first full day as humans was a day of rest. They were created for rest and fellowship with God on the Sabbath. And then today we saw how God laid out this model and framework for living, this, this balanced rhythm of work and rest using the bread test with the Israelites. And then if we skip on a little bit further in the Old Testament in Mount Sinai, in, God instates the Ten Commandments and the Sabbath is right there as one of them. It is actually one of the, it is the only uh, practice that's in the Ten Commandments. It's right there alongside not killing people and stealing from others. And in the Gospels, we see Jesus, and don't forget that Jesus was Jewish, and he practiced the Sabbath. And we, all, we also speak so highly of the early church, but many of us forget that a large portion of the early church was Jewish, and they continued on the practices of the Jewish faith. They just believed in Christ. And for a very long time, the Sabbath was a core practice of the early church. And since then, certain denominations and groups of people within the church have continued a regular practice of the Sabbath and the Lord's Day. Much of the modern church has left the Sabbath behind. And we could go into an hour-long talk about why we've left it behind. But I will leave it at that, as that is our basic explanation of the Sabbath. Now I want to give just a quick explanation of actually how to Sabbath. Um, Because the Sabbath is something that is very misunderstood of what it looks like. So how do you practice the Sabbath? Do you pray from the moment you wake up until the moment you go to sleep? Are you required to listen to worship music for the entirety of your day? Like, when most people think of the Sabbath, that's what they think of. And that can be what it is if that's what you want it to be. But in no way are those rules or regulations that God has put on us. The Sabbath can really be broken down into four key movements. Stop, rest, delight, and worship. And these are movements, they're rhythms, they're not rules and regulations. There's not a a hard boundary line between all of them. It's not a four-step process. It's more of an approach to a day with God. So stop. First, we stop. The word Sabbath can be translated to stop. So the Sabbath is a day to stop. You stop working. You stop thinking about work. You stop worrying. You say, enough is enough. I'm not in Egypt anymore. I'm taking the day to stop. And once you're in a place of stopping, you then rest. So you fill the Sabbath, you fill this day with whatever is restful for you. You sleep in late, you take naps, you watch movies, you go for a walk, you do anything that brings you restoration. And I can't tell you what that is because we're all different and God has uniquely created you to meet you on the Sabbath and bring you rest. But you do things that bring restoration to you spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, relationally. 
you rest. And then you delight. Like I said, a lot of people think the Sabbath is a day of rules, but really the Sabbath can be further away from that. It's actually more about the fun things that you do get to do than things that you don't do. Uh, The Sabbath is a day to indulge in the things that you find delightful. You eat your favorite food, you spend time with your favorite people, you read your favorite book, you go to your favorite coffee shop, and you play your favorite game. Notice that word favorite. On the Sabbath, you do the things that bring you joy. And as pastor in New York City, John Tyson, he talks about how the Sabbath is a day to practice pleasure stacking, which is this idea that you're just stacking as much stuff on top of each other that you love to do. So you may wake up and you go on a delightful walk to a delightful coffee shop, and then you proceed from there to a delightful bakery to eat a delightful pastry, and you do all of it with a person in whom you find time to be delightful. And that's my Saturday morning routine. I do that every single Saturday. And that is the way that I begin my Sabbath. Anything and everything goes. You do what brings you delight. And while you're doing all this, and through all the things you decide to do or not do, you do them on the Sabbath as an act of worship. Alan, the team leader here at Crew, he likes to talk about looking through the gift to the giver. And that's really what so much of the Sabbath is about. You take a nap and you find rest and you thank God for it. You eat a delicious meal and you give thanks to God. Gratitude turns any ordinary activity into a spiritual practice and an act of worship. You may think that you're just drinking coffee, but you're worshiping God. You think that you're just kayaking with your friends, but you're really lifting up Jesus as you do that. And you may think that you're just eating dinner with your roommate, but you're fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit while you do it. So that's the Sabbath. There's not a lot of rules. There's not a lot of burden. It's a day to stop, to rest, delight, and worship. And the Sabbath is just another bread test for God's people today. Will we trust God, gather bread, and enter his rest? Or will we choose to live like Athens is Egypt. I've discovered that there's really one main reason why people don't just fail the bread test, but they choose not to even take it. They don't even wanna get close to the test. And it's trust. Do you trust God? Do you trust that the world will hold? That was a big one for me. Will the world keep spinning if I stop moving? Will your schoolwork get done if you take a day away from it? And what will you find out about yourself if you slow down long enough to see what's really going on? And I'm sure these were the same questions the Israelites were asking. Will we have manna to eat on the seventh day? Will we die out here if we don't stop hiking forward towards the promised land? Is God who he says he is? Will he really provide? Should we just go back to Egypt? It might be better there. The world tells us that if we stop, we'll die. But God says, if you stop, you will find life. And those two cannot be more opposite. Life and death, rest and weariness. And I wanna close with Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. But when we, think, when we think about this passage, we think of this word yoke, 
Um, you can actually put it back up on the screen if you want. Um, yeah, most of us, when we see this passage, the immediate thing we think of is yoke. Um, and if you don't know, um, a yoke is a piece of equipment that you would put on an ox while it's plowing a field, and it kind of keeps them in line. Um, and this is what this is referring to. Jesus has a yoke that we are to take on, and this, this yoke is unlike any other yoke. It's not burdensome. It's not heavy. And we wear this yoke as we move forward in the Christian life. But there's also something else going on in this passage. The term yoke, not many of us know this, but it was also a first century term used to describe the set of teachings that a rabbi had. And a rabbi was essentially just a teacher. And a rabbi's yoke was his, maybe his interpretation of the Old Testament, his understanding of certain commands uh, from the Torah, and a list of practices, perhaps, that he would encourage his disciples and students to adopt into their life. And Jesus was a rabbi. He was another teacher, and he had a yoke. He had you know, a list of interpretations. He had practices that he asked his disciples to take on, and that was his yoke. And most of the time, at that time, rabbis had heavy yokes. They had heavy teachings that put burdens on people. And their yokes were used for coercion and for control. But Jesus' yoke was about example and invitation. So in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30, he's saying that his teachings, his commands, his practices are unlike those of any other teacher before. Remember earlier when I said that God was laying out a framework and a rhythm for the Israelites to live in. And it's in that rhythm that they would find life, rest, and care. In the same way, Jesus has established a rhythm for us. The Israelites gather bread and they entered rest. And today, Jesus is our bread. We come, we sit at the table, we feast with him. And we find our life in him and we enter rest in that place. So as I read this passage to you one more time, I want you to think about it less as like a farming metaphor, which we typically think of, but as a way of life that Jesus is calling us into where we hear his commands, less as rules and burdens, but more as invitations into his care. So actually, if you guys could maybe like stand up. Do you guys do that here? Stand on up. And would you just open your hands and just receive um, this scripture as I read it over you, and then I will pray for us. So Jesus comes to us and he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, we thank you that you are the same God who provided manna for the Israelites. Jesus, you provided your body as the bread of life when you're here on earth. And your body is still on offer to us. So God, would you... Um, pull us closer to you um, as we come to eat with you, to receive life from you. Um, God, would you just release the chains that we have on us um, here as we live in Egypt today? 
God, we don't want to be slaves anymore. We thank you that you've given us life. So God, would you just enable us to come to you over and over and over again to receive your care? No matter how hard we try to receive it from the world, we aren't gonna get it. Our care comes from you, Jesus. So we come to you and we receive. Amen. Hey guys, we're gonna enter back into a time of worship through music.